Alright folks, I got a good one today. This is called Heavenly Horses of the Heart from an article or a magazine, Impressions Magazine, I guess. Um, Pictures and Things, Bridging Visual and Material Culture in Japan. Anyways, uh, (coughs) sorry. By Melinda... Takeuchi, Heavenly Horses of the Heart of the Heart. Okay, horsemen refer to the flat out run as the flying gallop. Or for people who ride motorcycles, especially cafe racers, it was called doing the ton. <laughs> Zero to a hundred. Okay. Flying gallop. This four beat movement involves a moment of suspension. All four hoofs leave the ground as the horse launches itself forward and upward. Yeah, there's a famous uh, old slow motion video of film reel of, of the camera catching it on film when all four hooves were off the ground. The thrust generated by the powerful haunch muscles makes the rider feel a bit like being on an airplane at takeoff. Gravity is defied, the adrenaline races, and we are no longer earthbound bipeds. Yeah, think of Superman, the, the, way, the way he puts his hands when he flies. He's holding on to a horse rein. Okay, no wonder then that the image of the flying horse touches something deep within the human psyche. The stunning exhibition Tenba uh, Shiruku Rudu o Kakeru Yume no Uma Pegasus and the Heavenly Horses Thundering Hoofs on the Silk Road Pegasus and the Heavenly Horses Thundering Hoofs on the Silk Road Mountain at the Nara National Museum from April 5th to June First, 2008 makes visible our millennia-old fascination. Huh, this is 2008. That's interesting. <laughs> makes visible our millennia-old fascination with the mobility, power, utility, and excitement associated with the species Ecus Caballus. The ex- the exhibition covers <clears throat> a lot more than Pegasus or the Silk Road. By tracing the transmission of the celestial steed over time. Oh, wait, what? Huh. Steed. I'm going to have to do a thing in the Bible where every time the word seed is used, I'm going to change it with steed (laughs) and see what that sounds like. Okay. By tracing the transmission of the celestial steed over time, the 9th century BC to the 19th century CE, and space, um, Western Asia, North Africa, ancient Greece, and Rome, India, and thence to China, Korea, and Japan. Like, honestly, if you look at nomadic lifestyle, you just follow the coastline. That's why old maps, everybody just lived along the coastline. Um, it offers tangible ways in which ideas and objects cross borders, morph, and take on new meanings. The mythical Pegasus is, is only part of this picture. 
Yeah, just just think about it. Why the fuck would horses be worshipped? Because they were the means of transportation. Like, imagine, you. Everyone knows people who have a car and have driven a car and owned a car versus um, never having one. So, if you had one and then you, let's say, lost it, then you would know. Wow, having a car meant I could do so much more versus. You know, not having one restricts your your travel. So imagine having a horse back then was like having a bicycle nowadays in, you know, one of the poorer countries, let's say. <clears throat> so they were given wings because because of horses you could trade, you could do you could do a lot more things. So that's why they were worshipped, I think. Pegasus and the heavenly horses was organized jointly by the Nara National Museum and the... Okay. Let me just get to the... Fuck it, I'll just read. Blah, 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 blah. There is a prodigious variety of formats and media, huge stone panels and tiny seals, ears and pots, bronze harness fittings, saddles and gold jewelry, lamps, coins, brocades, point... Printed books and rubbings. There are bronze and ceramic, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Ceramic statues of horses. Decorative mirrors. Mmm. There are bronze and ceramic statues of horses. Decorative mirrors. We all know what mirrors are for. Sarcophagus panels and eaves tiles. Sarcophagus panels. We also find hand scrolls and hanging scrolls featuring mandalas, mm, iconographical drawing and sutras, as well as manuscripts and printed books covering subjects as varied as jockey attire worn at the traditional fifth month camo shrine horse race, the Otsubo school instructions on military equitation, and the ancient Chinese Ode to Celestial Steeds, copied out by a 19th century Japanese Sinophile. Sinophile is basically someone who studies China. Sino is China. Most spectacular... I'll look it up. You don't believe me though. Let's see. (laughs) Sinophile. Approving or favoring the Chinese or their policy or characteristics. Okay. Okay, maybe not someone who studies, but someone who's interest, strong interest, sorry, file, not ology. Alright. <clears throat> so let's see. Um, most spectacular perhaps are the large wooden sculptures of the horse headed cannon from Buzai Inn and Joru Riji. Both important cultural properties. Wouldn't that be crazy? The whole Bible is just talking about horses. (laughs) Given the ambitious... Well, not just horses. I mean horses and shamans. Given the ambitious scope of the exhibition, a large team of specialists was pressed into service for its handsome catalog. Okay, so... Let's say Jesus was a horse. Then my question is... Who was... Who was the character or person... So then who was saying all those things? Like, 
Jesus said a lot of things. So, so then my question is, well, then who who was saying these things? So that's my next question. Okay, could be Caesar. I mean, his uh, Marcus Aurelius's um, oh god damn his his famous book, the fucking Meditations. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Just saying. Okay, um, given the ambitious scope of the exhibi- exhibition, a large team of specialists was pressed into service for its handsome catalog. All these people, blah, 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 blah. One of the catalog's primary arguments is that the figure of Pegasus grew out of the mythical composite beasts of ancient West Asian origin, which include the winged lion, griffin, the human-headed lion, sphinx, and various other hybrids found on seals and carvings from Iraq, Iran, and Syria. Look at that. And along with them, the winged horse. From Iraq, Iran, and Syria. All these places just getting fucked. I wonder why. This is the gist of section 1, translated as the birth of heavenly horses. Western Asia as the crucible of the winged beasts. It always has to be Western. Everything has to be Western. It's like they cannot imagine anything good from the East. Okay, section 2 treats the motive, motif of the winged stallion and the Pegasus legends in ancient Greece, Etruria, and Rome. <clears throat> Look, man, if you have everything you ever wanted, you rule the world, and still on top of that, you <laughs> have to... <laughs> oh my god, man, I pity you. Pegasus was the most famous, but not the only, of these equine avian descendants of the West Asian hybrid beasts. Horses were associated with the sky in many cultures. You know what? I don't give a fuck. This West East bullshit is bullshit because where's the line? Where the fuck is the line? Huh? <laughs> Who decides? Where where does the sun rise and where does it set, man? Fucking bullshit, man. That's the problem. That's that's the problem. The moment you draw the line is when the when the bullshit starts. <clears throat> what line? What fucking line? Nature has no lines, man. <laughs> Nature has no borders unless it's water. It's just you can make a boat. What border, man? Nature has no fucking borders. The lines are in our fucking head, man. Pegasus was the most famous, but not the only of the okay. Horses were associated with the sky in many cultures. Compare the Indian sun god Surya and his chariot, iconographically similar to the Greek Apollo or to Eos, the goddess of dawn. Yeah, because we were all... We all came from the same stock... So, obviously, we all were cousins, and we all knew the same stories, obviously. 
the cumulative effect of seeing object after object emblazoned with winged horses leaves the viewer in no doubt about the enormous popularity of this creature capable of liberating human beings from the bonds of earth yeah you ever wonder if like you had conversations with horses and they were like what the fuck man we never <laughs> we we never had any say in any of this human history the fuck <laughs> like they agreed to be like all right yeah i'll go with you guys and raid rape and kill and burn and torture yeah i'll help you do that the fuck like as if <laughs> anyways man, the the cumulative effect of seeing okay and the portable nature of many of these pieces amphorae jewelry lamps for oil coins along with their dispersal from Tunis to Turkey drives home how easily motifs traveled across the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, cultural appropriation is what we call it nowadays. But back then, that's basically what we did. We, we literally, these merchants or whatever would travel back and forth on the Silk Road, picking up shit they saw they liked, and which sold. That's basically how it all started. And now we have all these... Whatever, man, whatever. I'm not going to get into it. Sections 3 and 4 illustrate the effects of the winged horse's odyssey eastward, courtesy of Alexander the Great and his conquest of Persia. Of course, everything great has to come from the West, <laughs> which was still cold which which didn't have good weather for agriculture of course everything good came from the west cuz they were so much more advanced when when it was colder and you know the weather sucked for agriculture yeah okay that's why <laughs> that's why the little island of england that has shit weather all year round even even the people living there now still it's a joke that's why they went all over the world all over the world <laughs> taking taking other people's land why cuz cuz they couldn't stand that little island they were stuck on anywhere with more sunshine will do all right i'm gonna stop bitching now okay iran served as a crossroads for cultures from asia minor the northern steppes and India. The, exhi the exhibition includes examples of flying horses from Sasanian Persia, Central Asia, Gandhara, Xinjiang, China, and Japan. The iconographical and stylistic relationships are indisputable. It's got nothing to do with which race is smarter or... It's got nothing to do with that. It's just geography. If... The weather is nice consistently all year round towards the equator, the tropics. You see the diversity of everything in those areas. You need water and sunshine. And then life will just blossom. And whichever area had that consistency for as long as possible was able to 
climbs Maslow's hierarchy and fucking blast off into God knows where to bring back gold and wisdom and knowledge. Like, you have to get to a point to be able to do those things. You're not just like, that's what I'm saying. In in Europe, for some reason, all these geniuses popping up during a certain time, just just all of a sudden. Which which is interesting because it, coincidentally that's also when Europe was you know uh, taking a lot of stuff from from the east with trading and shit. Look, man, it is what it is. History has happened. The winners write the history. It is what it is. But. Because of progress, you see, because of uh, the way humans work is, after a while, you can start to smell the bullshit, (laughs) which is apparently more like horseshit now. The iconographical and stylistic relationships are indisputable. Pegasus received a particularly resounding welcome in China, for the ground had been well prepared for his reception. As we know from the ritual bronzes, the Chinese had their own composite beast, and the horse was was highly valued in ancient Chinese culture. The goddess of sericulture from early times was envisaged as a female with the head of a horse. Carriage horses sacrificed in the great Shang tombs were presumed to be capable of transporting the king to the realm of Shangdi. The rites of Zhu, dated by some scholars to the Warring States period, um, mentions a dragon horse, Longma that soars to the heavens and or carries humans to the land of the immortals. The descendants of Pegasus made their way eastward to the central kingdom along the newly opened trade routes through Central Asia. As the exhibition demonstrates, there was an explosion of winged horse imagery. In tandem with the rising popularity of Western images of flying horses, Chinese explorers voyaging west to Central Asia returned with tales of large, swift, hot-blooded equines, as opposed to the sturdy, placid Asiatic ponies, (laughs) capable, they claimed, of traveling a thousand leagues a day. The seventh Han Emperor, Wudi, sent two military expeditions to Fergana to bring back these marvelous steeds. Yeah, they had a whole fucking war over the heavenly horses. <clears throat> several several words entered the Chinese language to describe them. Tianma, cel- celestial steed. Feima, flying steed. Shenma, divine steed. Hmm, the ma is consistent. And... Han Hansu Ma Blood Sweating Steed Hansu Ma Blood Sweating Steed is Jesus. Once one begins looking for winged horses in East Asian art, they pop up in the most 
unexpected places from the 1st to 3rd century Wu family tombs in Shandong to the famous 8th century Japanese gilt bronze image of the newborn Buddha at Todaiji which has a winged equine inscribed on the basin. Section 5 deals with the miraculous powers ascribed to horses in religious mythology. You know why horses also have wings? My take on it is because they are environmentally friendly, we will probably go back to riding horses. Because all these cars, and now they're saying all these electric cars, motherfucker, how the fuck are you going to make electric cars without making the hot warmer? Making the making the earth warmer, hot warmer. <laughs> how you going to make electric cars without making the earth warmer? Okay. <clears throat> Just stupid, man. Electric cars. What's the difference, man? You 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 still using the same methods to make it. You still using coal to make the car. Ah, man, monkeys, man. Section five deals with the miraculous powers ascribed to horses in religious mythology. This takes us to pre-Buddhist Indian narrative tales, incorporated into Buddhism, such as the folk tale about a magical horse. Um. Magical horse that rescued a merchant from female ogres. Okay. <laughs> I guess Shrek, um, I guess she does turn into an ogre at night. This story was enfolded into Buddhism as an aspect of the all-merciful Bodhisattva Avalo. Kiteshvara, who incarnates as a benevolent white horse to rescue shipwrecked sailors. Is this Little Mermaid? The association between horses and water is strong because horses are powerful swimmers. Huh. I never knew that. Did you know that? I never knew that. Horses are fucking powerful swimmers. I never knew that. The fuck? Namely, Poseidon's horse and watery chariot. Avalokiteshvara, equine iconography proliferated. The synthesis assumes myriad permutations. As Buddhism began absorbing local deities, the Hindu sun god Surya and the moon god Chandra Ah, so that's what the moon guys, Chandra, joined the pantheon in China. Look at that. Along with their chariots as the gods Ritian and Yutian. Winged horses also appear independently or as mounts for deities on numerous Buddhist and Shinto mandalas. Sakyamuni, the Buddha, to be, rode a white horse for his great departure, envisaged as flying through the cloudy heavens in the illustrated sutra of cause and effect. Look at that. Past and present. A black horse propelled Shotuku Tiashi to the summit to Fuji. Kukai made part of his magical flight to India on a white horse. King Solomon has stories of flying on a magical horse. So does the Prophet Muhammad. 
one of the most surprising and unexplained manifestations of the white horse is its appearance on the cliff of the Nachi waterfall illustrated in, in scroll 7 of the 13th century life of Saint Ippin. The secret is we are all re related. That's the secret. And they don't want us to know that because it's easier to control us when we are divided. That's, that's how simple the story is. We are all from the same family. We're all brothers and sisters. But because they need a workforce, they need cows to milk, you know, they have to give us different stories to divide us so that, you know, we just don't get along. Calcutta was one place that I saw with my own eyes because I lived there, I was born there. With my own eyes, I saw people of all faiths getting along, learning from each other. Yeah, we there were there were incidents of, you know, conflict, but overall everyone got along fine. People from all over the world, different religion, cultures, backgrounds. We all got along. We, if we could do it over there, why the fuck can't we do it? <laughs> like, what? Okay. Section 6 is called Galloping Before the Gods, a cultural history of horse racing. Okay, I'm not saying it was, I'm not saying Calcutta perfect. Trust me, I know. I've, I, I've been the, I've, <sighs> I've seen the un underside of it too, okay? It's not pretty. And this is what I'm saying. Anywhere I go, I notice the same pattern. Wherever there is civilization, there is poverty. Versus where people still live the way they did. The indigenous people that they, that live that still live the way they did for thousands of gen generations, guess what? Guess what? They're doing fine. <laughs> because they've... Anyways. Anywhere civilization goes, it it destroys, pollutes, it trashes, and then... And then moves on to the next spot. It's literally Wally -E happening right now. The movie Wally -E <laughs> is the way we're headed right now. Fucking. <laughs> One might wonder why the horse race, as opposed to other traditional Japanese equine sports like dog chasing, mounted archery. Dog chasing. Huh. Makes me think of Snatch. Mounted archery, wild horse wrestling. Wild horse wrestling? What? This is it Japanese? Polo or hunting was selected until we recall that the Japan Racing Association was one of the sponsors of the exhibition. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Material from this section was, with one exception, drawn from the Equine Museum. As early as the 8th century, horse racing became one of the imperial pageants in Japan and like sumo carried religious connotations 
races at shrines such as Kyoto's Kamo Shrine held annually on the fifth day of the fifth month became part of the annual calendar. Following these six sections with their overviews and plates come seven short scholarly narrowly focused essays that revisit more that revisit where was I that revisit more deeply various issues raised in the previous material the essay by Lucrezia Ungaro for example reconstructs through line drawings and maps the Temple of Mars altar in the Forum of Augustus in Rome the original site of the exhibition's luminous white marble architecture fragment of a statue of Pegasus. Nagai Hiroyuki discusses the appearance of the celestial steed in early Chinese imagery such as the Han Dynasty, classic of seas and mountains, Shanhaijing. Images of these beasts recorded in encyclopedias show an improbably ugly combination. Wait, what? Show probably an show an improbably ugly combination of a fox-like head, canine paws, tails of a horse, and wings of a bird. Mori Masahide probes aspects of horses and state authority, the importance of mounted heroes and the deification of equines in India. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Everything comes back full circle to all these statues being removed of dudes on horses. Um, a final contribution by Suezaki Masumi compares the camera versions of the various gates with their representation in art. The artist's image is almost always much more pleasing. He ends the section with a photograph of a herd of Kazakhstani Akalteke horses galloping. Well, I don't know if it's Kazakhstani. I thought it was Turkmenistan. I thought they were from Turkmenistan. Interesting. These horses, with their strange iridescence and preternational preter natural endurance are thought by many myself included to be remote descendants of the blood sweating horses of Fergana which I think is what Jesus was Pegasus and the heavenly horses thundering hoofs on the Silk Road shows how a shows how powerful a role visual imagery visual imagery plays in the diffusion of culture in their own day, most of the viewers of these objects, it is safe to say, could not read or write. Of course. <laughs> most of them were not even allowed to ride horses, a sumptuary protocol. Well, it is true, it was mostly feudal back in the day. Okay, so a sumptuary protocol designed to separate elite from common. Okay, I agree with that. By the same token, readers of the catalog do not have to be equestrians or even be literate in Japanese to appreciate the intellectual connections drawn by the material. The gripping notion of riding a horse that can fly speaks directly to the heart. Heavenly horses of the heart. Alright. 
Well, she said it's the Kazakhstani, but let me. Let me see. A Kalteke from is a Turkmen horse breed. It says mostly from Turkmenistan. Hmm, interesting. This was written in 2009. So this one says Kazakhstani. Akalteke. Well, I looked up what Akalteke means. Apparently, Akal means eyes with coal. So coal is the the fucking um, uh, black powder, usually antimony sulfide or lead sulfide, used as eye makeup, especially in in Eastern countries. Basically, um. Oh my god, what's the English word for the thing? Eye, eye shadow? Eye blackness? What was it? Anyways. Which is interesting because so the horse's eyes... Eyes with coal. I'm assuming that's what it's called. Akal was the name of the line of oases along the north slope of the Kopit Dag Mountains. It was inhabited by the Teke tribe of Turkomans. Alright, I found this one article. The country of the Teke Turkomans and the Tejand and Mergab rivers. This was from the Royal Geographic Society back 1881, man. Fucking 1881. Alright, this is great. I love old shit like this. Alright. Okay, if this thing loads, come on. Come on. Okay, fucking bullshit. Alright. In April 1880, I left Constantinople for Persia, traveling by Trebizond and through Armenia. At the time I passed through Armenia, the famine in the land was terrible. Which is interesting because apparently Armenia was the first country to uh, accept Catholicism. Hmm... There's a pattern with famines and Catholic. Anyways, <laughs> I'm just kidding. When I approached a village, the first sight I saw was the whole of the women and children out in the fields collecting crocus bulbs, dandelions, and grass to eat. I was glad to get away from a place where it was so dreadful to see suffering which one was unable to alleviate. There was no food for the people, and small gifts of money, which was all I was able to bestow, were nearly useless. I went from Erzurum by Bayazid to Khoi in Persia, visiting many of the battlefields of the late war between Russia and Turkey en route, and passing over some of the Kurd country whence Sheikh Obidullah later drew a portion of the troops with which he invaded Persia. My theory is Shakespeare was not, he w- he was not originally from England, I don't think. 
Shakespeare, I think, was a shake something from Arabia. A shake. Um, I traveled from Khoi past the lake of Urumaya to Tabriz and Tehran and from Tehran to Ishbahan. Ishbahan, yeah. At Ishbahan, I remained for two months and a half residing in the Armenian suburb of Jolfa. I had determined to visit Dargez and here I made my preparations. Dargez a dis is a district of the Persian province of Khorasan. It is situated across the mountain range which elsewhere forms the boundary of, of northeastern Persia. You know, one thing I will say is I do appreciate the way people would write back in the day. It was way more visually descriptive. It was just, it was, it's like, let's say, when you read a book, and depending on the author's way of writing, is basically a flashlight, how, how good a flashlight is, but or, or, or it's just, it's like, because with these words, they're painting a picture for you, and, well, it also depends how good your imagination is, so, <laughs> but basically what I'm saying is, it does help when the writing is good. <laughs> okay. Um, as Dargaz projects into the Teke Turkoman country, it is a good place from which to gain information of that tribe. The best road from the country of the Akal Teke to the country of the Merv Teke passes through the district. So Merv now is apparently called Mary which is in uh, Turkmenistan. Apparently, Mary, that city, Merv, which, is, which used to be called Merv, was the oldest city in the world, apparently. I knew that if I had if I traveled as an Englishman, as Colonel Baker and Captain Gill had done, I should not be able to collect information, as I should be watched and have a guard with me who, as the Persians would say, were furnished to, to do me honor and protect me, but who I knew would have positive orders to prevent my holding free and independent communication with the Turkomans in Dargaz, and that if I was permitted to have any intercourse with Turkomans, it would only be with such as would tell me that the Persian governor wished I should, should be told. Okay, intercourse here does not mean sex. I hope. <laughs> I had, <laughs> I had uh, one of my previous visits to Persia. I had on one of my previous visits to Persia been at Julfa, and I knew it to be a good place at which to make preparations for my journey. I here hired two Armenians to accompany me on my travels, uh, one as a sort of partner and clerk, the other as a servant. I determined to travel as an Armenian horse dealer, horse dealer of Calcutta. Hmm. I had been in Baghdad and Mesopotamia and knew the ways of the Bombay horse dealers who visit those places. You know another interesting thing about the word Calcutta? Apparently, it's a betting term. Calcutta is a betting term, and 
the city Calcutta, which is Kolkata now, used to be huge on horse betting. The the, the what's I forget the name of the grounds, but basically it used to be huge with the horse horse betting. Okay. This knowledge now stood me in good stead, as the price of horses had risen very high in Baghdad. Some of these men visit Persia and travel as far as Mashhad on horse-dealing expeditions, and I found one party had actually been to Muhammadabad, Muhammadabad, in Daraghez before me. Which, of course, smoothed matters for me. I procured two suits of Armenian clothes and a black lambskin hat. I left Ishbahan on the 30th of September, dressed as an Englishman, ostensibly to travel in western Persia. But after marching in that direction about one march and a half, I turned round and steered my compass for Nain, leaving all roads. I had not even told my partner and servant exactly where I was going, as I thought the best way for me to keep the secret was not to let them know. Yeah, servant. Um, when I came to a desert place, I changed my clothes and threw my hat, which could not be hidden, down a carez or underground canal. I had chosen the character of an Amer Armenian horse dealer from Calcutta because... I thought I could sustain that role better than any other. I mean, literally, people would do was doing this type of shit for real in their lives. Life wasn't a movie. They were actually doing this shit. Movies are for... <laughs> ah, whatever, man. When I... When I came to a desert place, I changed my clothes and threw my hat, which could not be hidden, down a correct... Okay, I read that. It's like fucking Agent 47, Hitman. I had traveled much... I traveled much in Asiatic, Asiatic Turkey and in Persia and New Oriental ways. The Armenians of Calcutta... They have chiefly come from Jolfa and Persia, and it was one of these Armenians that I determined to personate, impersonate. It's interesting because Armenians in Calcutta are go way back, which is interesting. I need some. I know some. Um, they're big into rugby. Um, that's interesting. I wonder why Calcutta. Okay, uh, I dressed just as well, just as, I dressed just as a well-to-do Armenian would have done. My partner and servant were Armenians who had visited India and could speak Hindustani. Could speak Hindustani? Hmm, I wonder what Hindustani means. We ordinarily we spoke Persian, but if I wanted to say anything private, I spoke to them in Hindustani. Huh. What the fuck is Hindustani? Is that Hindi? So Hindi and Persian. Okay, the bystanders then imagined we were speaking Armenian. If by chance anyone who had visited India understood what was passing, 
which was very unlikely there would be nothing curious in an Armenian horse dealer from India speaking the language of that country. Any peculiarity in my accent when speaking Persian would be put down to my having learnt it in India. This reminds this makes me think of uh, Inglorious Bastards Gorlami. <laughs> my only fear was that I might chance to meet real Armenian traders, but I knew they seldom did but I knew they seldom visit Daragas as they are too much afraid of being carried away and sold as slaves by the Turkomans. Huh, interesting. The first town I reached was Nain, or Nain, celebrated for its faints in ancient times. Faints? And even now that the pottery made in this town is not, is the best manufactured in Persia. I did not enter the town as I did not yet feel confidence enough in my new dress to face the Persian officials who would probably have interviewed me. I heard that the road from Nain to Tabas across the Kavir or Great Salt Desert was very difficult in consequence of the want of water and that and that the road, though difficult, was better by Ardakan. Oh, the Salt Desert. Okay, I gotta look this up. I therefore went to Ar Ardakan which is a place of some 20,000 inhabitants situated not far from the Kavir or Great Persian Salt Desert. A road leads from Ardakan across the desert, which is used by pilgrims from southern Persia to the holy shrine of Imam Reza at Mashhad. At this season, the pilgrim caravans are not very numerous, as the heat in the desert is still very great, and this is the time when there is least water. Rain rarely falls in southern Persia, except in the winter months, and no rain had fallen in this part of the country for six months, so the hoaz, or res reservoirs for water, on the road were generally empty and water only remained at places where there were natural springs which were rare and far apart it's interesting because I was watching this uh, documentary on the Silk Road and apparently um, up in that area um, Central Asia there's all these um, underground I guess like holes or wells they dug back in the day and connected them in a line and all the way across this area and apparently that's how they brought water over from one area to a, to another underground so it was filtered and cool legit from in the middle of a desert fucking crazy they, they 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 knew how to do all this shit back then they knew how to use nature and okay i mean the romans did it too um where was i arzakan is surrounded by high walls of the most flimsy description they look exactly as if they were made of the sort of gingerbread known as parliament 
Hmm. And they, hmm. Interesting. Gingerbread known as Parliament. And they were cut into a serrated pattern at the top, which still further increased their resemblance to gingerbread. All the show. Parliament's all the show. <laughs> remember, remember. These walls are, however, only meant to resist an attack of people unprovided with artillery, so they are sufficient. So they are sufficient. Articon carries on a good trade with India, and many of the people have visited that country in the course of business. I stayed at the caravan Sarai. What? Caravanserai in this town. I stayed at the Caravanserai in this town. What's a Caravanserai? Caravanserai. Caravanserai, okay. So it's like a motel, basically. Damn. So basically, this is where you came and parked your caravans and st stuff. It was okay. So it was like a motel for caravans. That's pretty cool, huh? Okay. Um, in this town, and was not recognized in any way. Within a few miles of Ardakan, the desert country commences, and in every direction there is nothing but barren, stony hills and equally barren plains. Man, can you imagine no GPS Google Earth back then? Shit. <laughs> Many of these hills are of a peculiar color. They're generally composed of a hardened clay and have a curious red appearance, being stained with ferruginous oxide. I mean, literally, if you play the game Anno, and then decided, mm, you know what, I'm just going to jump into this game. That's what it feels like. That's what life feels like. Everyone's saying it feels like a simulation, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it just feels like we set up this whole planet, Earth, blah, 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 map. And then all of us decided, okay, let's jump in. And then we shrunk ourselves. <laughs> Anyways. <sighs> The explanation of this peculiar color, I believe to be that each grain of clay of which the mountains are composed is coated with a very thin pellicle of peroxide of iron. The first march from Arzakan was to a village called Homan, 30 miles over a very desert country. Homan was a pretty little oasis in the desert watered by a tiny spring wherever water can be found every sort of fruit flourishes mm-hmm pears apricots apples and walnuts abounded in this place yeah you ever wonder where the fuck these like trees popped up from like where you just need water and soil and then nature takes care of the rest through music <laughs> a very fine variety of ibex is plentiful near homin i procured i procured some of the horns and hoped to get the species identified it is not the ibex of the himalayas capra si siberica siberica 
the horns being very different. It is, however, similar to a living specimen which I procured in Suleimani, in the Suleimani range of mountains on the northwest frontier of India. Suleimani range of mountains. This is what I'm saying, dude. Like, I feel like India... The... India, Arabia... Yeah, the... Horn of Africa, the it's like all the stuff. I feel like Hindustan was, I think, very, very big. I mean, the Mughals were the Mongols, which turned to Islam. It's like the whole area was probably just one. Something smells fishy. It's the Romans, I think. The Romans came and set up this false Christianity, I feel like. Anyways. Hmm. Look at this shit. I marched from Homan on the 15th of October. Hmm. The road leads up. <laughs> What's the 15th of October? Look at that. The synchronicities are pretty crazy. I don't know. I'm just talking. Sorry. The road leads up a great ravine for many miles. I possessed only the three horses we rode and carried the few things I required in a large pair of saddlebags on my servant's horse. One of my animals got a bad sore back, which delayed me very much. I could not purchase a horse to replace him and was obliged to hire two donkeys and though persian donkeys are wonderful beasts carrying heavy loads they delayed me a good deal <laughs> horses and donkeys all involved with 15th of october hmm. i traveled without a guide and the only water being a short distance off the road in a side ravine i missed it in the night as soon as i found i as soon as I found I must have passed the water, I went a few hundred yards off the road and went to sleep in the stony bed of the ravine. After picketing the horses and giving them some food, I always carried for them. At dawn, I went back and found the water and also the donkeys who, with their driver, had lost their way in the night and only reached the water at the same time that we did. The road from Yazd, Yazd to Tabaz joins the road from Ardican to that place in the ravine just mentioned a few miles before reaching Dokuli as this small spring of water is called after water watering our horses okay how much more I mean this one's fucking 49 pages where are we at hmm I'm just gonna skip ahead to See what I can find. Hmm. Okay. This is. Oh, damn. This shit has a whole map. The fuck? Okay. I'm gonna definitely get the map but okay let me see let me read from chapter two all right 
The Dargaz district has a length of some 65 miles and a breadth of about 40. There is a governor appointed by the Shah, though the appointment is hereditary in one family. He bears the title of Bejler Beji, Begler Begi, and the people speak of him f familiarly as the Khan. His name is Mahomed. Ali Khan. He is of Turk descent, as are a large portion of his subjects. There are also many Kurd villages, but it is a distinction to be a Turk. Nadir Shah, the last king who ruled Persia in its full extent from Georgia to Kandahar and from the Tigris to the Oxus, was born in a tent of an Iliad, a tent-dwelling family of the Ash Afshar tribe, about one mile from Mahomadabad. That's interesting. Spelt Mahomadabad, not Mohammedabad. Huh. He built a small fort, now in ruins, to mark the place of his birth. At present, it is only the the wild tribes who plunder Persia, Bukhara, and Afghanistan that are called Tur Turkomans, but the name had once a much wider signification and there is really no ethnic difference between the civilized Qajar tribe to which the royal family of Persia belong and those who and those now called Turkomans. Huh, interesting, I didn't know that. In the history of Nadir Shah called Chehangosha Written by Mirza Mehdi Khan, Astra, Astrabadi, he is always spoken of as a Turkoman of the tribe of Afshar. Afshar. Huh, interesting. This, everything keeps going back to this. Okay, okay, anyways. Nadir Shah himself, in a letter to his son, speaks of having treated the emperor of Delhi with courtesy when he captured that city because they were both of illustrious Turkoman descent. Look at that. We also know that the Turkomans of the white of the white sheep and the Turkomans of the black sheep so called from the figures of these animals that they carried on their standards and who had their respective capitals, the one at Diyarbakir in Kurdistan. Well, okay, the white sheep and black sheep makes me think of uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb. No, was it that one? Mary Had a Little... Anyways, that's interesting. Hmm, black and white. Hmm, okay. Okay, um, who and who had their respective capitals, the one at, okay, and the other at, the other at Van in Armenia, were of the same race as the nomads of the Karakum Desert. The Turkomans speak a variety of Turkey, differing very little from the Turkey spoken all over northern Persia, and the Turks of Persia understand it, though there are some differences. The Persians call the Turkey spoken by the Turkomans Jagatai. Jagatai? 
That kind of sounds Mongolian, doesn't it? Jagatai. Um, Jagatai, Jagatai. Wasn't there some, one of the Khans was named something Thai? Anyways, the Turkmans inhabit the country between the Caspian Sea and the River Oxus. This country bears no general name and a great part of it is taken up by the sands of the Karakum or Black Sand Desert. It is bounded on the north by the kingdom of Khwarezm or Kiva and on the south by Persia and Afghanistan. There are a few Turkomans in Afghan territory and a few also across the Oxus in Bukhara. The country inhabited by the Turkomans is watered by two considerable rivers beside the Amu or Oxus which which bounds it. One of these, the Morgab, takes its rise far away in the Safid Ku or White Mountains in Afghanistan and after a long course loses itself in the sands of the Karkum Desert. Before doing so, however, it fertilizes a long, narrow strip of country on its banks. This tract of country from the point where the Morgab leaves Afghan territory to the point where it is lost in the desert has always been celebrated in Eastern history as a most fertile land. Yeah, man, this whole area is just so much going on. Merv, Meru, or Merv, the city on the Mergab. Okay, so this, like, it's, like I said, this place is called Mary now. Is mentioned in the earliest records of the Aryan race. Balk, Merv, and Seistan were the places where Iranian history begins. Balk, Merv, and Seistan. Huh. The country watered by the Morgab and Tejent rivers was known to the Greeks as Margiana, and it was visited by Alexander the Great and Antiochus Nicator, Nicator ruled on the Morgab. However, we need not dwell on these old world histories, which I have only alluded to, to show that Merv was long ago, it was the seat of a Christian archbishop of the Nestorian Church during the reigns of the Sasanian dynasty of Zoroastrian kings of Persia, as was also Tus near Mashhad in Khorasan. I was much interested in trying to discover remains of the numerous Christian churches in this country, which the presence of two archbishops would presuppose. Christianity goes way back. We don't we you don't even know, man. <laughs> At a village called Julfan, some twelve well the the original Christian some twelve miles distant from Mahomadabad. Why is it called Mahomadabad? A mound was pointed out to me called Tepe Kalisa or the church mound where tradition says a Christian church had stood. Kalisa? What? I visited the place and found some ruins, but nothing that could enable me to form a definite opinion as to whether it was a church or not. Kalisa, which is 
only a corruption of ecclesia is never used by these people except for a Christian church. Yo, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Kalisa is ecclesia. Kalisa is Kali. Kalidasa was Kali's. Yo. It's apparently also a Germanic name. Kalisa with the two S's means noble one. The meaning of Kalisa in Udu meaning bomb, lemon bomb. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is going on? Meaning of name Kalisa. Purely concentrated to the Almighty, the one who has given herself to God. Given herself to God. Kalisa. Hmm. Interesting. So interesting. Okay, anyways. It was, uh, it was curious... That the neighboring village should have borne the name of Julfan for Julfa on the Araxis and Julfa, the Armenian quarter of Ispahan, are both Christian towns. That's what I'm saying. The Nestorian Christianity, I think, was the original. And then, I don't know, we'll, it, we'll, we'll get to that. The people of this village... Wait, where the people of this village of Jilfan said the tradition was that it had been a Christian village, but that it had been destroyed by Genghis Khan in the 13th century, and that they themselves were Kurds brought from the west to repeople the deserted village. Also, in a route kindly furnished to me from Mahomatabad to Mana near the Tajend by Mr. O'Donovan, the Daily News correspondent, he mentions three villages as Koja, Kalisi, Kalisi, Koja, Kalisi, Akmanat, Kalisi, and Karakan, Kalisi. Dude, this is where if this is where Kali comes from. Oh my God, man! No wonder it all comes from this area. I have to look up. I have to look up what the fuck this Kalisi thing is now. What the fuck? Or Kalisa, sorry. Kalisa. 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 Urdu. Anyways, I'll look it up later. I cannot help thinking that all these places have taken their names from the ruins of Christian churches being situated near them. They are between Kaka and Mana on the Persian border. It would be very interesting to search for the ruins 
and find out if this was the case. Look at this shit. The Arabs captured Merv about AD 666 and found it a very rich city. Until this time it had a Christian archbishop. At the time of the Arab conquest, the, the Salur and Saruk tribes of Turkmans were in the country. The lieutenants of the caliphs of Baghdad ruled Khorasan with Merv as their capital. I have not space to enter into the history of Merv in the time of Sultan Sangar. On the 25th, well, if he's a sultan, then it's probably Arabic. Um, if he's Arabic, then it was. This is what I'm saying. Hindustan is. Hmm. Because before India, before the British, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, all these, Sri Lanka, all these places were part of the same Hindustan. So. Hmm, I wonder what the original Hindustan, how big the original Hindustan was. Anyways, on the 25th of February, 1221, I just think that was interesting that the Arabs captured Merv at about AD 666. I have to, I have to look that shit up, man. Okay, Merv. Even, uh, even, even... The fucking name, what was his name? Even the Silk Roads guy was talking about, had mentioned that city of Merv, which is now called Mary in Turkmenistan. Okay, um, on the 25th of February 1221, Merv was besieged by a, by a Mughal army, Mughal army under Tuloy. Tului, a son of Genghis Khan. What did I tell you? Mughal, Mughal, Mongol, they're all descendants of Genghis Khan. The place was captured and they all spoke uh, Urdu, Arabic. This is what I'm saying. The, the, the descendants of Genghis Khan and Arabic and Islam and Arabia and Hindustan, they go hand in hand. I remember Calcutta used to be huge uh, on tannery, tanning. The the especially the Chinese community used to be huge on tanning stuff, and then you know they all once uh, start stuff. Hmm, then they took and then they went to Canada. Basically, that's what I heard. So were they descendants of Genghis Khan, the Chinese in Calcutta? Alright, um, the place was captured and the population put to death with very few exceptions. It is said by uh, Ibn ul Ether that 700,000 dead bodies were counted. God damn. I mean, I did hear in one video this guy say that Genghis Khan, or there was a story almost, or no, or he said it was, it almost felt like. Nature, Mother Nature sent Genghis Khan to kill a bunch of fuckers because apparently uh, the earth was... Or apparently Genghis Khan, because of all his killing, uh, <laughs> um, prevented 
the earth from like warming up even more or something like that. This is what I heard. Okay, this is probably an exaggeration, but it shows how large a city Merv must have been that a writer could suggest that 700,000 people were put to death in it. It's, it's not crazy because that's where the Silk Road was. Right there. It was... I'm telling you. The Mughals had a curious and methodical way of numbering the slain. When a thousand dead had been completed, they placed one body with its head buried in the ground and its feet, and its feet upwards so that the thousands might be conveniently counted. <laughs> they even had a way of fucking a... The last Merv was the city so bravely held by Bairam Ali Khan Qajar. A branch of the Qajar family who now ruled Persia had been placed in Merv by Shah Tamasp to defend this outlying province as they were renowned for their courage. During the troubles that followed the death of Nadir Shah, Merv was attacked and captured from the Persians uh, by Beje Jan, called also Amir Masum, the Amir of Bukhara in 1784. Bayram Ali Khan was slain outside the town, and his son Muhammad Hussein Khan, who made a glorious defense, even the women joining in it, was carried captive with the population that were spared to Bukhara. Since that date, there has probably been no such town as Merv. I'm just gonna jump ahead a bit to the part where, yeah, okay, um, let me see. Many small streams from the mountain ranges of Dargaz and Kalat-e-Nadiri run towards the Tajen, but none of them reach that river. I believe that in former times they did fall into it, but that now they are diverted for irrigation and are lost in the desert before reaching the Tajend. The Tajend is described by a friend of mine who crossed it near Mena as being ordinarily fordable at all points below Sarox. In the spring, from the melting of the snows in the mountains, it is for a short period unfordable. He says that when he crossed it last February, the water reached to his horse's stomach. The riverbed was sunk about 12 to 15 feet below the level of the surrounding country. Immense quantities of driftwood, driftwood covered its banks, and at each angle of the stream, trees grew in abundance. There was little or no grass when he saw it in winter, but he said no doubt there would be plenty in the spring and summer, the Kashaf Rud, which passes near Mash Mashhad, falls into the Tajend and is one of its most considerable affluents. The country bordering the Tajend has never played the same part in history as the Merv country. The only town of much importance on it in ancient times was Syrinx. In modern times, Sarax, a town situated on the eastern bank of the river nearly opposite, opposite the present Persian fort of the same name, 
which is situated on the western bank, was a town of considerable importance. It was destroyed in 1830 by Abbas Mirza, the Persian crown prince, and many of the inhabitants killed. The remainder were carried away captive and settled by the prince within the Persian border. But as they made themselves disagreeable to the Merv Teke, by giving notice of raids, they were all carried away by them, whether with their own consent or not, I was not able to ascertain and distributed among the Teke and the Merv country. The whole Salor tribe do not now number more than 5,000 tents. The Tejend, like the Murgab, is finally lost in the sands of the Karakum Desert, formerly a great deal of the country now desert between the Tejend and the Murgab rivers was cultivated by means of canals from the Tejend, and these canals used to reach as far as Kuchakum in the desert, rendering the journey much easier than it is at present. Yeah, this uh, makes me think of fucking the movie, um, The Kingdom of Heaven. Except, you know, not <laughs> all these heroes have to be white dudes. It's like, Jesus Christ, white dudes have to be the heroes for everything. Like, okay. <laughs> like, okay. I will now give an approximate estimate of the strength of the Turkmen tribes. This is pretty well known, as they are often mustered in war and each tribe has a pretty accurate idea of its fighting strength which may be considered as one fighting man for each tent. Akalteke in Daman Iku now belong to Russian 25,000 tents. Mervteke on Morgab and a few on Tejan River 40,000. Salur 50,000 tents but included in Mervteke. Saruk at Yulatan and Panjdeh on Murgab River, 11,000. Total, 76,000. The number of inhabitants per tent may be taken as five. This will give for the Damien, Damaniku, and Merv country a population of 380,000, and I do not think this is an excessive estimate. Besides the above, there are a... Ayersari Turkomans on the left bank of the Oxus who may be reckoned at 75,000 tents. There's a lot of people, man. This was very, very diverse. This is the problem of unification and unity is in the price paid for becoming one. I don't know, man. You kind of lose a lot of... uh. your unique this is what I'm saying like why can't all of us be able to be ourselves and get along with I don't know maybe it's too much maybe it's too much I don't know man We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm gonna leave it. Leave this one. Let me see. Is there anything I want to read? So this was all about 
petroleum, gas, energy, which we're paying the price for now because of burning oil. What goes around comes around. Who knows what oil was actually meant to be used for? <laughs> what nature actually had. Okay, Baku, which I remembered as quite a small place, has now more than 30,000 inhabitants and it has, I believe, a great future before it. The unlimited supply of petroleum, which is here found, is a mine of wealth. As soon as railways are made, I believe that Baku will supply the world with petroleum. The price is now only a half penny per pood of 36 pounds on the spot, and the supply is practically unlimited. All the steamers on the Caspian already use it as fuel instead of coal, and I believe the use of petroleum as fuel will soon and I believe the use of petroleum as fuel will soon be extended to the railway railways also. Some locomotive engines already burn petroleum. Which is very interesting because when all is said and done, if we look at history, it has been about energy because without petroleum we can't drive our cars we can't transport our goods we can't ship our vegetables it says right here all the steamer okay now the pro okay The unlimited supply of petroleum, which is here found, is a mine of wealth. Yeah, the Middle East, the UK, the royals, and the American presidents, with the Pope and the, the Saudi Arabian kings, it's, it's all connected, man. It's all about who gets petroleum and... Who will be in charge of maintaining that uh, system? So you have one nation with the biggest army. And you have one nation with all the unlimited supply of petroleum. What do you get? You get climate change. <laughs> you get 2021. Peace.